Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Let's go through these discussion questions together very quickly. Number one, um, looking at an Old Testament passage, a prophecy, and the fulfillment of that, at least in part, in the New Testament. Um, how does God work through these earthly rulers to accomplish each of these things? So, A, Hosea 11.1 1, and Matthew 2.13 through 16. Any table want to volunteer your thoughts? Yeah, they're, they're sent to Egypt because of Herod. They're brought out of Egypt because of Herod. It's a whole, the whole thing is, is, is contingent upon uh, God's sovereignty over the ruler Herod, right? Uh, B, Jeremiah 31.15 and Matthew 2.17 through 18. <laughs> that's terrible here <laughs> it kills them all yeah uh, but that is accurate that's an accurate rendering of the text yeah uh, there was a prophecy about that and God working through Herod in, a, in, a, in his sinister schemes Herod's sinister schemes uh, brought that to pass um, Isaiah 9 1 and Matthew 2 21 through 23 any table want to volunteer your thoughts on that yeah that Jesus would be called the Messiah would be a Nazarene Right? Yes. And, and God using Herod again and uh, Archelaus, I think, was the guy. Um, and, and, and Matthew just says it as if, you know, this is just what happened. But it was to fulfill prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, Micah 5, 2 and Luke 2, 1 through 4. This is an easy one. Yes, Micah, Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And in Luke 2, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Easy stuff. Yeah, and all because of the decree... Of, of Caesar Augustus, right? And then and you, you say, well, Caesar was making his own plans, but God was working sovereignly through Caesar to bring about this census and the tax and Joseph and Mary and the, all of it under God's sovereign control. All right, Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, and uh, Acts 4, 27 through 28. Yeah, the, the, full, the prophecy of the suffering servant and God working through wicked rulers like Herod and Pilate to bring that to pass. Um, according to his own purposes and what he had predestined to take place, uh, Luke says in Acts. Number two, what responsibilities do we have toward our government according to Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4? So who wants to give just a, a general outline of some of those things? That is correct. And Paul, Paul is very clear about that, yes. And, and as are the apostles in Acts. Uh, number three, what is promised in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Revelation 7, 9 through 10? What is promised in those two passages? One by Jesus looking forward, and then one sort of in Revelation looking backward. All believers, specifically from all nations, yeah, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that's correct. So how does this reveal God's sovereignty over all human history? From the moment that Jesus, before that, of course, but especially here, we see from the moment Jesus makes that promise uh, to its fulfillment in Revelation, how do we see God's sovereignty uh, in that over all things? Yeah, I have all authority. 
I'm with you till the end of the age, till this is all done, till the mission is complete. And then we see that mission completed in Revelation. Interesting tidbit about Revelation 7. Might make you mad at me. 144,000, right? That's just a few verses before Revelation 7, 9, 144,000. Then it lists 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, You need to notice how many times in Revelation John, the apostle, hears something. And then when he turns to look, how it's something else. So one of the first times that happens is in Revelation 4 or 5 when he hears uh, that the lion is worthy to take the scroll. But when he turns to see what it is, it is a lamb that has been slain. And of course, all of that pointing to Jesus. There's not a lion or a lamb, it's Jesus represented by those pictures. Um, The same thing's happening there in Revelation 7, in my humble opinion, that we hear 144,000, and we hear these tribes, 12,000 from this tribe, this tribe, this tribe, this tribe, 12 tribes. But when John turns to see the passage you read, Revelation 7, what does he see? A multitude no one can number from every tongue and language and tribe and nation uh, that have been delivered by the hand of God through uh, what John calls the Great Tribulation. We'll get to that later, maybe in 10 years. So that's all uh, fulfillment of Jesus' promise, bringing that to complete in his time, in his way, by his rule, and by his sovereignty. All right, so let's jump in then, into this then tonight. God's rule over nations. God is over all. This has been our theme from the start. God is in control. And to this point, we've, we've hit on the kings and the nations thing, but we've been looking more at our personal lives and how we can trust God. Now we're going to expand that a little bit and go into a larger scale, human history, nations, kings, and empires, and see how God is in sovereign control over all of that as well. So number one, simply, God is over all human history. And by over, I mean in control, sovereign, authority, rule and control over all human history. As such, God is working out the details of that history. Not just the big events. That's what Christians have been tempted to do is to see God sort of stepping in in these big things that we read about, the crucifixion, the birth of Jesus, and we all say, well, sure, God did that. But does he always do that? Is he always working through the Caesars and the emperors and the presidents and the kings? And the Bible says he is. Not just in the birth of Jesus or the death of Jesus, but at all times and all places, God is at work in the events of human history. Making, literally God making the events of history. Uh, Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just read one verse in Ephesians 1, and it kind of encapsulates a whole lot, but there's one phrase I want us to see. Ephesians 1, would someone volunteer to read for us verse 11? Ephesians 1, verse 11. All right, so the first half dealing with us personally, predestined to receive this inheritance according to the will of him, the purpose of him who does what? Works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's all-encompassing all things, okay? not just our individual salvation. But what Paul is saying here is that you can trust him with your individual salvation because he's not just in control of you, he's in control of all things. And all things happen according 
to his own sovereign counsel and his own sovereign will. The author says this, we should put our trust in God, not in the decision-making powers of politicians, government officials, and even the Supreme Court. I think this book was written, remember the date, the year, originally written in 1988. So, but how, how pertinent for us to remember in this day and time that our future as Americans, our future as uh, Christians, our safety, our security, eternally speaking, does not rest on any legislative body, any president, and even the Supreme Court. As important as all these things are, and as great a responsibility as we have as Americans to vote, and to vote our conscience, and to vote our faith, and all those wonderful things that we get to do, None of our eternal security and inheritance and salvation is ultimately based in any of that or on any of that. God is sovereign above and beyond all of it, and we should trust him, not the ruling powers of this world. God is in control, and it is his will and his counsel and his sovereignty that decides the fate of humanity and history to bring it about according to the way he's planned it. This is true even when we can't see it, even when it's not always evident. God's rule isn't always evident. Now, we confess it, and that should be what grounds us, and that should be what anchors us, but there are going to be times when it does not look like God is in control. Now, and what we kind of mean by this, I think, oftentimes, especially as Americans— Okay, let's speak candidly, more conservative Americans, is that um, God is in control, we tend to say, when our candidates win, when our candidates do well, when the laws are passed that, that suit us and fit with our faith and our values, when the Supreme Court justices rule according to what we think, we say, ah, that proves God is in control. But what happens when whatever party you are, we'll pretend like we're all just mixed up in here tonight, uh, when the other party wins control of the House or the Senate or the White House or when this president or that president appoints, uh, appoints a new Supreme Court justice that does not agree with the way we see things as Christians uh, or, or whatever you choose to, to identify as in your party, your politics, and all that good stuff. I'm not going to presume upon anyone tonight. It's not always evident that God is in control. What did you say? Who cheated? I got to edit this part out. He'll come find me and put me up with the January 6th folks. Rulers seem to rule as they choose. So we look at the day-to-day events. I don't know if you watch the news from day-to-day or you tune into Fox News or CNN or something and see what's going on in the world or with President Biden or Congress or, or whatever's going on in the world. And you look at that and it seems like if we just sort of disassociate ourselves from our theology and from the truth that we confess at church, it looks like things are just sort of happening, and, and they're just making these, these decisions, and they're making this stupid choice or that stupid choice, or they're doing this good thing or that good thing, and it just looks like it's kind of going on on its own. We have to confess, though, even in those times when it's not evident, and even in those times when something seems insignificant, or it seems as if something is outside of God's control, God's rule over even those decisions and those people and those times is no less sovereign. No less sovereign, even in those things. Uh, There's a quote on page 
69, I wanted to read to you, right there in the middle, uh, in her uh, spaced out quote from John Newton. John Newton was an Anglican priest, former slave trader, author of Amazing Grace, the, the hymn and other hymns too. Uh, he said this, the kings of the earth are continually disturbing the world with their schemes of ambition. They expect to carry everything before them and have seldom any higher end in view than the gratification of their own passions. But in all they do, they are but servants of this great king and lord and fulfill his purposes as the instruments he employs to inflict prescribed punishment upon transgressors against him or to open a way for the spread of his gospel. They had one thing in view. He had another. Now, I don't know if he's meaning to paraphrase Genesis 50, 20, but that's what it sounds like to me. They meant this for evil or for their own purposes or their own greed, their own power, but God is meaning it for good. Not Remember, not just simply turning it or just using it, but he's in it, meaning it the whole time for his purposes and for his good and for his glory. So now let's talk about those specific rulers, not just nations and these sort of big concepts, but God's rule over the rulers as king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of rulers. Number one, it is God who has established government. God establishes the government. We read this a minute ago. We're going to read it again in just a second. Um, it is not merely a human invention. Now, the various ways that humans have carried out government, from democracies and monarchies and feudalism and all, everything in between, uh, the ways that we have sort of evolved and grown over the centuries and how we do government has changed, but the idea of a controlling authority that sets laws, that punishes and rewards, is from God because it's a manifestation of who he is as the sovereign ruler over the universe with these promises and blessings and warnings and curses, uh, punishment and blessing, that all comes down to bear uh, when we see God's idea for the state and for the government. In fact, God has ordained the government down to its rulers. God ordains the rulers, whoever they are, whoever they are. So um, when Trump was president and, and most of you and us, should I say that, were happy, um, then God was, in, God was in control. When Barack Obama was president, God was in control. And God ordained Obama, just as he ordained Trump, just as he ordained Biden, and just as he will ordain whoever's next. If it's more of the same or someone else. Uh, God ordains those rulers. God ordains those Supreme Court justices. God ordains those people in Congress and the Senate and our mayors and our sheriffs and our school board and pastors, and deacons, and leaders, and teachers, and parents. God ordains those that are in authority over us, and they would not be in authority had God not ordained them. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing that God ordains authority. Uh, we talked about this when we were in Romans 13. You can go ahead and turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, we'll read a few verses, but when I preached through Romans 13, I talked about this. Um, what would the world be without laws? What would the world be without people enforcing those laws? Imperfect as it may be, God's design for those laws and those authorities is to reward good and punish evil, to prevent chaos and anarchy. Now you think about the Roman Empire at the time of the early church. Uh, this was no God-fearing state. 
Right? They were pagans, idol worshipers, anti-Christian, at least until the 300s. And yet, the New Testament authors repeatedly tell us God has put that government, wicked as it may be, in control for the safety and the good of humanity. And as imperfect as their rule may be, that state and that government is better than no law and no government and no authority. Because then, remember judges, everyone becomes an authority in their own eyes. And we see the chaos uh, that brings down upon God's people. Let's look at a few of those verses you read earlier. Romans 13, would someone read? It says verses 1 and 4. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Someone read Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Who will volunteer? Judy, thank you. Loudly, please. All right, so see Paul. And remember, this is Paul's ideal picture of the God-ordained authority of the state or the government. And in his command for Christians to submit to these governing authorities, he reveals God's design, the ideal design for how government and the state ought to function, that they ought to reward that which is good and punish that which is bad. And so as a general principle, you know, Paul is aware that there is injustice. Paul is not stupid. He's, he's going to be a victim of such injustice as a, a persecuted Christian and a martyred Christian for his faith. So Paul, Paul is aware of this. But as a general rule, this is what the authority of the state does. It protects those who do good, and it punishes those who do bad. With lots of exceptions, Paul says this is the general principle. As imperfect as that state was then, as imperfect as our state is now, this is how God has ordained um, Christians and humans to govern themselves. Uh, look over at Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. All right, there's a lot to talk about there. and We'll come back here uh, with God's control over nature next week. But for, for now, let's look at that second part of verse 21. He removes kings and sets up kings. Again, it is God who does this. Now, we look at our culture, not the culture then, uh, but we look at our culture and our society, our country, where we elect our rulers. And it's the will of the people, in a sense, that, that should at least um, have the day when it comes to voting, whether it's Congress or local or state or federal or the president or anything else that we vote for. We're choosing. But behind our choosing, again, is God's sovereign control. Because whether we're talking about kings or princes or empires or emperors or Caesars or dictators or presidents, or everything in between, it is God who sets them up, and it is God who removes them. This doesn't mean that everything these kings do is good, okay? That's clear throughout Scripture. God uses these wicked kings and punishes them for their sin and their wickedness, and he'll do the same for our presidents or whoever is in control. But that is not to say that they're somehow outside of God's will and control and his sovereignty. No, they're right there in the palm of his hand, doing as he directs, doing as he wills, doing as he prompts, remember, doing as he restrains. Uh, it's not to, to give sanction or approval to everything they do, but it is to say they've been ordained by God and they wouldn't be there apart from his authority. God determines how long they rule. He sets them up. He removes them. Sets them up, he removes them. We say, well, we've got a term limit of four years, and then you can do another term of four years. But we've seen those terms interrupted in the past, haven't we? With impeachments, assassinations, um, deaths, 
And someone else has to come in and take control. And it looks like just this kind of freak accident, this freak thing that happens. No, God is the one removing. God is the one putting that new person in place. God is the one that has lined up the succession. Until recently, believe it or not, was it Nancy Pelosi? She was third, right? Would have been president, vice president, then speaker. Wouldn't that have been something? That would have been God's will. I had to pray for Nancy Pelosi. I pray for her every day. I really do, especially on Sunday morning. lost on you it's okay he also rules over their decisions did y'all not see the interview where she like rebooted herself mid-interview she said good morning sunday morning okay i found it funny thank you for laughing we should pray for and bless them Uh, you don't have to turn back to 1 Timothy 2, but in 1 Timothy 2, you read that in your discussion questions. Uh, lifting up holy hands, praying for people that are in control, people that are in power. Look at what Peter says. Turn over to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. I remember preaching through 1 Peter. I think it was less than a year, a year after I'd been here. Maybe it was, maybe it was a year and, and a half. And uh, went through this section, and of course, there's you know, a lot of questions, a lot of things that are raised about, now what about, what about this? Um, when it comes to the Bible, <laughs> and it comes to the Word of God, I think it's just best to, let me word it correctly, in a general sense, uh, just do what the Bible says. <laughs> is that a good principle? And so when it comes to all the whatabouts and whatabouts and whatabouts, I think you have to just pray through those and go through those event by event with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, with the truth of Scripture, following the will of God, and, and sort of judging between what's right and what's wrong. But as a general rule of thumb, what we see here in Scripture should guide our attitudes and our hearts and our mindsets. And so uh, someone read First Peter chapter 2 verse 17. Now that's something, you know, for Peter, uh, who himself will be martyred by the, the Roman Empire, who is speaking to Christians who will pretty soon hereafter, he says, Peter says, face fiery trials for the gospel in a lit very literal sense for, for most of them um, under Diocletian and Nero and others that will persecute the church in the decades ahead of Peter. And yet he says here, without caveat, without exception, Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. I think when I, I remember this now, when I preached First Peter, the uh, let's go Brandon thing was a big deal. And I said that we shouldn't say that. And that was, those are some fun conversations. But I stand by it. That shouldn't be us. We can have disagreements. We should have disagreements. We can speak out. We should speak out. But in terms of disrespect and irreverence and hate and cursing, um, that is not what the Bible teaches us, and that is not how we should respond to our leaders, no matter how wicked they may be. I guarantee you, whatever wicked ruler God puts over us is no more wicked than these Roman emperors. And yet Peter says, honor the emperor. Paul says, pray for them, bless them. Um, well, those are those scriptures. Let's, let's look at a few observations here. These are quotes from the book, nothing to fill out or... or right but just notice these with me god can and does work in the hearts and minds of rulers and officials of government to accomplish his sovereign purpose so just this sort of bullet point uh, 
themes of this chapter, God can and does work in the hearts and minds of rulers to accomplish his purposes. God sometimes causes, notice that word, government leaders to make foolish decisions in order to bring judgment upon a nation. I don't remember who the quote is, but you see in every election cycle that uh, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Uh, When God wants to judge a nation, sometimes he gives them stupid rulers (laughs) or foolish rulers. And God does these things to bring judgment upon a people. Maybe their people, maybe other people. You see other times in Scripture when God uses these foreign pagan nations to judge his own people and to bring them to repentance. Uh, God can and does do that in the world and does that in history even today, even down to today. In the headlines we see. Number three, we should take more seriously our responsibility to pray for the leaders of our government that they would make wise decisions. Uh, It's good to know what people in Congress are believers. It's good to know who in Senate are believers. It would be wonderful to have a God-fearing, Bible-believing believer as a president and a vice president, but um, they don't have to be a believer to still be guided by God and to make wise decisions. Um, Non-Christians can make wise decisions thanks to God's common grace over all people that keeps the world from just spinning into chaos God controls our hearts and our minds and our emotions and our wills down to these leaders and rulers, and we should pray for them to make wise decisions. Well, let's talk about militaries, war, uh, the battlefield. Uh, This was a, a much more common concept in the first century than it is for us today, but it's still very prevalent today, maybe not in America and in our wars and conflicts, but we're still involved in them, and there are conflicts and wars going on right now around the world. So where is God in the midst of those? Uh, Very simply, God rules over the battlefield. Every battlefield, God is the one who is in control. He is sovereign. Victory is the Lord's to give. He gives it, and he withholds it. He brings victory. He brings defeat. And so when we look at the might of our military, we look at the might of military around the world, we think about nuclear arsenals and terrorists and war organizations and dictators and Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas and everything that we're involved in. We look at all that, it seems so big and so large and so outside of our control. When we can stop for a minute and think that it is under the sovereign rule and control of God to give victory where he wills, to bring defeat where he wills, according to his own counsel, according to his own power, this should cause us to trust him and not military might. I think it's wise and prudent for nations to have militaries, to protect our nation, to protect our borders, to protect our interests as a people. God, again, Romans 13, God puts those rulers in control to do that, to wield the sword against injustice, to wield the sword against evildoers, to punish them. And I think that includes uh, corporal capital punishment. I think it goes down to that. But our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust is not in military might. We don't trust in chariots or horses, right? But our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. 
Let's look at a few uh, scripture references here to see, see some interesting language. Turn to Judges chapter 7. All right, so God says you've got too many people. <laughs> you've got too big of an army because if you win this thing, they're going to be tempted to say, oh, we saved ourselves. God says, I want to get the glory in this. And if you notice that wording there at the beginning of verse 2, the people are with you, with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. So who's giving who to who? God is giving the Midianites into Israel's hands. God is the one giving the victory. Defeat to the Midianites, victory to the Israelites. And he's going to do it here with these 10,000 men so that he gets the glory and they can't boast in their numbers or their military might. Uh, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings 20. Someone read for us verses 28 through 29. All right, this massive victory for Israel over the Syrians. But in the beginning, whose is the victory? It's, the, it's God's, and it's the Lord's to give. The Syrians were tempted to think that Yahweh is God on the mountains, the high places, but he's not God in the valleys. And so what does God say? Okay, meet him in the valley, and I'm going to give them into your hands. So who's giving who to whom? Again, God giving the Syrians into Israelites, the Israelites' hands in victory. God in control of the whole thing. Uh, lastly, look at Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one. Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one. All right. So we could have a whole little lesson right there on that one verse. Be ready. It's nothing wrong with a nation or a state, a commander, a king being ready for battle. Certainly want to use wisdom. Use what God has given. Steward that well to protect your people and protect justice. But in the end, the victory belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to God. It's his to give. It's his to withhold. So if we take away anything tonight, let's learn then to trust God's rule. And let's look at what this means as sort of an overarching view of history, what we call redemptive history. What is this all about? What is the whole thing about? Well, all of history, the entirety of creation from beginning to end, is one big, as, as John Calvin would call it, theater in which God displays his glory through redemption, namely through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that revealed to us in Genesis 12, 3, when God promises to bless all nations. He makes that promise with Abram, I'll multiply you, I'll give you a nation, I'll raise up a nation after you. But the point of that blessing comes in verse 3. And in you and through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as you saw earlier in your discussion questions, one day that will become a reality. And what John sees there around the throne, a multitude that no one can number. From what? From all the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation represented around the throne of God. And so we see God's promise almost from the very beginning of Scripture to bring a blessing to all nations. We see Jesus' promise of that in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Interestingly enough, he says, this is my promise, but you have a part in it, right? Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them, but it's my authority and I'm the one who's with you and it's my Holy Spirit who's giving you the power to do this. When we come to the end of the book, though, we see all of it fulfilled 
God using us, God working through us, all the while carrying out his sovereign will to have a people for himself from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every nation, just as he promised from the beginning. It is God who will bring that to pass. Using us, working through our obedience, our evangelism, our worship, our proclamation of the gospel, our disciple-making, working through those things, our prayers, but God working through those things to accomplish everything that he has already predestined to take place. So, if that's the story of history, God blessing the nations through this promise to Abraham, through the Messiah, Jesus, through the gospel that brings all these nations around the throne of God. If that's his promise, and that's his plan, and we see that it comes to pass in the end, every step along the way, we must trust God to do his work. We must trust God to do his work. And again, lest we be tempted to think that this means what will be will be, I don't need to do anything, I'm out of this, you're out of this, there's nothing for us in this because it's all just sort of blind, uh, stoic fatalism. It's nothing of the kind. As we learn to trust God, the Bible says, let that trust not lead us into some sort of apathy, but let it lead us to pray. I think, you know, the prophets and the apostles understood God's sovereignty. We read these pages, we read these scriptures, we see that they knew God was in control. God was sovereign. God was bringing everything about according to his own plan and his purpose. But did that stop them from praying? Absolutely not. They prayed and they trusted that God was using their prayers to accomplish his will in the world. Furthermore, let that lead us to proclaim. Yes, God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over salvation down to the salvation of individuals. But the Bible also says we must believe. The Bible also says we must come to him. The Bible also says we must repent. And so while we say God is sovereign and God elects and God predestines and all these heavy concepts, we might be tempted then to say, well, if God's going to do this, then why don't we don't do, do anything? Why do we evangelize? Why do we pray? Why do we even talk about Jesus if he's just going to do it? That's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible presents God in control, using our prayers, using our evangelism and our proclamation to accomplish his will. We get to be part of this in God's grand sovereign design and scheme for the world and for the salvation of his people. And so this trust that we have in God brings comfort, it brings stability, it brings us an anchor in troubled times, it brings us stability in tumultuous political climates, because we trust that God is in control and God is sovereign. We can trust him to do his work. And as we trust him, we pray. As we trust him, we work. As we trust him, we evangelize and tell people about this sovereign God and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness and for your sovereignty. And ask tonight that you would help us to turn to you in times of uncertainty, in times of despair. God, when we're tempted to think that you're not in control, and we're tempted to think that you don't see and you don't care, 
Help us to remember that you are in charge and sovereign control over these huge things, all of human history. And because you're in control of that and because you're sovereign even over those things, we can trust you with our lives. We can trust you with our salvation. We can trust you with our security and our safety and our stability. We can lean on you knowing that your will is best and that your will is for our good and for your glory. God, help us every day to become more and more like Jesus, which is our greatest good, and help us to rely on you and to trust you in all things as we pray and as we proclaim your goodness to the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.